Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog, All Together, at altogether.swe.org. Looking for more information and data on women in engineering? Head over to research.swe.org and review the groundbreaking research that SWE has been conducting. SWE's research efforts include reporting on women of color in engineering and how community colleges may play a role in getting more women to graduate with engineering degrees. You can also check out the annual SWE Literature Review in SWE Magazine's State of Women in Engineering issue. Hi, I'm Sandra Guy. I'm a Chicago journalist who's written cover stories and news articles for SWE Magazine for the past 12 years. And under the brilliant leadership of the magazine's editor, Anne Peruzic, we contributing writers have won many awards. So welcome to SWE's diverse podcast series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. You can visit SWE, that's the Society of Women Engineers, SWE.org for more details. We think of Halloween as goblins and trick-or-treating, but this spooky holiday can also bring back memories of workplace horrors for women engineers. So we're talking with several who've told me their spooky stories, how they've overcome those terror-filled times. So perhaps you, our listeners, can be encouraged that you also can prevail. And now we're going to talk to Brienne with our first spooky story. Brienne C. Martin is a mechanical engineer based in Texas. Welcome and thanks for joining us, Brienne. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little about yourself, please. Where did you go to school and where have your studies taken you in your career? Sure. So um, I'm originally, as you mentioned, from South Texas. I'm the oldest of three kids to a single mom. Um, as far as engineering goes, I have always been just fascinated by how things are put together. You know, I'd see buttons on chairs and obviously a, a chair has a metal piece and a plastic piece and doesn't grow off a tree like that. So um, just trying to figure out and always asking questions as to why and how. I always love that science and math could explain the world around us, you know, whether it be Jimmy have two apples and Sue has three and like, you know, together we have five apples. Uh, just the fact that there was a rhyme and reason and something that could explain uh, or even again, the science of, you know, cycles and how, you know, trees grow and that we could actually explain that was just fascinating to me. Um, so I really got into interested into engineering when I took a hand instrument drafting class my freshman year in high school, absolutely fell in love. Um, thankfully I was able to do the hand instrument drafting, uh, even when AutoCAD was a thing then. Uh, but my uh, teacher at the time, uh, you know, advised, oh yeah, any type of architecture, civil engineering, mechanical engineering, this is kind of, you know, where design and drawing comes into place. Um, so then from that, I pursued my mechanical engineering degree, starting at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that good thousand miles away from home. I uh, ended up transferring to Texas A&M Corpus Christi and graduated December of 2013. Great. So continuing on with our Halloween theme, 
Many people tend to associate fear with external forces, but that wasn't quite the case for you in your engineering journey. Tell us what your spooky story stemmed from, please. Sure. Um, so I kind of feel like I've always been in fear and, you know, I, it becomes a common thread with us women engineers, uh, but essentially the, it all rooted from my life experiences. Um, I grew up with a lot of trauma and different forms of various abuse. Um, and so kind of that intriguedness of always wanting to answer questions and figure out the world around me, the fact that I couldn't deal uh, or have a solution to all the internal issues I was facing kind of became the, addicted to improvement personal improvement, um, again, professional improvement. Um, and the, for those of my Lean Six Sigma nerds out there, that's the name of the game, right? It's continuous improvement, um, especially since I was in manufacturing, uh, starting in my internships and throughout college. And so all of that, again, was just constantly like continuing to push and striving for perfection uh, because there was a lot of internal stuff that I wasn't dealing with that, you know, would in turn uh, show up while I was pursuing my engineering career and cause a lot of struggles for me. Okay. So perfection is a great goal, but in your case, it impacted your own engineering journey. So tell us a little bit about that, please. Yeah. So um, like I said, because there was a lot of, um, and I, I think we talk about soft skills as, you know, just as important of being able to achieve our technical skills and showcase them. Um, it was really hard for me and, and even pursuing, again, these engineering technical classes. So as much as I love math and science, because they were challenging and hard, um, you know, having this kind of internal turmoil that was happening uh, within me, kept me from being able to focus on classes, um, not even being able to kind of pay attention while lecture has, was happening, or even just have like straight up panic attacks, um, you know, while it was quizzes or any type of test, um, you know, trying to do homework was just overwhelming because I couldn't remember. And then I mentally beat myself up um, for not remembering or not taking good enough notes. And so it was just constant kind of back and forth where I had higher expectations and demanded excellence of myself. And yet I just didn't have the emotional intelligence or even the mental health at that point to continue to move forward. Um, and so it was just constant struggle of retaking classes or failing or, um, you know, even having professors tell me that it, it, uh, they thought it was cute that I was going to pursue engineering. Um, so it, it was, again, this constant battle. And how did you say to yourself, I need to deal with this and then move past your fears and anxiety? Yeah, so I think just acknowledging that that fear uh, throughout my engineering journey, um, fear that I wasn't good enough, you know, fear that not only was I a woman, but a woman of color and everyone was judging me, they had their own expectations. Um, I really just kind of had to take a step back and say like, you know, like I'm, if I'm giving it my best shot, whether I'm cut out for this or not, you know, if it takes me 10 years to do it, then it takes me 10 years to do it. Um, thankfully, my mom, you know, was kind of that voice of reason for me. Like, who cares if you failed the class? Who cares if, you know, maybe you have to take a break or come back, uh, which ended up not being the case. But again, just understanding where that sense of fear was coming from um, and then just to simply ask for help. You know, hey, this is where I'm struggling um, to move forward. Uh, you know, one example was I had the chair of the math department, Dr. Krenz, um, who simply just sat time with me. Uh, I kind of openly tell the story that I registered for calculus two, five times, 
failed twice, withdrew twice, and finally passed the fifth time with a B. Uh, but the fact that he sat down with me, again, I still felt ashamed and embarrassed, but we just worked through problems. And at the end of the day, it was like, you know, he ended up telling me, Brian, you get the calculus concepts. It's the algebra that you're struggling with, um, which all made sense. It, the algebra was what, you know, when I was taking an eighth grade, um, when kind of my life imploded with the whole um, abuse thing that was happening and we went to court and you name it. So um, again, just being able to ask for help when I needed it. Um, similarly, again, him having that outreach and helping me kind of just work through it and facing my demons, if you will, uh, facing the the struggles I was facing with the math problems, uh, then led me to reaching out to my counseling center after I transferred uh, to then really help me work through using the disability services to like able to get extended time or, you know, take my medicine, be in a calm, quiet environment while taking my tests, you know, made a huge difference. So again, just being able to reach out for help ask for help, acknowledge where I am and, um, you know, just kind of do an assessment of the situation rather than have high expectations or, you know, as we mentioned, striving for perfection, that was a little too unrealistic, especially with where I was at. Great. And that takes a lot of courage. Absolutely. What advice would you give other women engineers who may be battling anxiety in their own everyday lives? Yeah, I think for me, the story we tell ourselves in our head is 50 times worse than what it really is just to simply face the fear. Um, You know, it's almost like a Band-Aid. You may be ashamed or feel embarrassed for a moment, but then you just move past it. Um, And I think as engineers, um, you know, we're trained to be thinkers and learners, uh, but we're always just afraid of that failure or what it means. And I think, again, just acknowledging that failing is an action, not a noun. So just because you simply fail does not make you a failure. It just means you're learning and you're growing. And so, again, just acknowledging that don't let your pride be in the way of you growing, learning, or even just being successful. Uh, We kind of need that at one point or another. We always need help. We always need to ask questions. um, And it's nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed about. Um, It only shows your strength in in having that vulnerability or acknowledging a point of weakness, um, you know, again, that you need someone else's help or that you need clarification for something. Great. Well, Brianne, thank you again for joining us today and sharing this wonderful personal story of fear and triumph. Absolutely. A pleasure. Thank you so much. Our second spooky story comes from engineering director Sarvanez Vaislicki. Thanks for being here, Sarvanez. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of this spooky stories theme, by the way. I love Halloween. Great. So first, Sarvanez, tell us a bit about your background. Sure. I come from an interesting family where everyone was born and raised in a different country, but all of us went into the same industry of computer science. I got my bachelor's at the University of Florida and master's at Georgia Tech. I started my career at a company called Nielsen in an engineering leadership program and then worked there for about six years before moving into my current role at American Express. As an engineering director there, I work in their customer servicing department. When it comes to SWE, I absolutely love being part of it ever since I first joined back in college. In fact, this year is actually my 10-year anniversary of being in SWE. Cool. Okay. So like Brianna, who we just heard from, Your spooky story also stems from internal emotions, but involves a topic that many people fear, constructive criticism. When 
and how did you begin to realize that accepting criticism was an issue for you? Oh, yeah. Well, I've always been a perfectionist. But when I was a student, accepting criticism was actually not difficult for me because it was so clear and objective. We had things like test scores and semester grades, and those things told me exactly where I had gone wrong. It was in the workforce, and especially when I became a director, that feedback became less black and white. And my inner perfectionist had so much trouble accepting people's subjective opinions about me and my performance. Um, a couple years ago, I had a boss who had a really direct style of feedback. Some people actually feared him. And at first, I too felt a lot of anxiety anytime I had to be in a one-on-one -on -one discussion about my performance. I would actually prepare for those meetings by thinking of potential counter-arguments to potential points of criticism he could bring up, which of course didn't help me grow, which was the whole point of his feedback. Luckily, that boss recognized this trait in me because he was very similar early in his career. So he knew exactly how to coach me out of the mindset that I was kind of stuck in. That's great. And that obviously helped you adapt. You now work as an engineering director and now you find yourself on the other side of that criticism coin. Would you consider giving criticism to also be a spooky aspect of your job? Well, I don't find it to be as spooky as receiving feedback, which still makes me nervous inside. But this is mainly because I've learned some excellent methods for delivering constructive feedback. That being said, I still do get nervous of the unknown, which is how the other person is going to react to your feedback. And how do you navigate that? What advice do you have for others who may struggle to accept or provide constructive criticism? The more prepared and thoughtful you can be about your feedback, the better. You can't expect to remove human emotions from the process, so it's actually better to be prepared for them. Uh, you might, for example, want to ask yourself if you have to give difficult feedback and you know that's coming up, how would you deal with someone who starts crying or if they're like how I used to be, defending and deflecting? I always recommend people who have to give feedback that's coming up for them to role play these scenarios with a friend or mentor and ask them to bring in those type of emotions. And then I would say it's also important to give good, positive feedback. A lot of times I'll see, for example, people will say, great job on that presentation, which is actually not the best feedback. Sometimes saying your presentation was great because you kept your time limit and because the content was easy to understand is so much more useful. So in other words, give real specifics, really concrete feedback. Definitely. And if you don't get that that's where you want to start asking for more details from whoever is giving the feedback. Sarvanes, thank you again for joining us today and for sharing a spooky story that I'm sure many of our listeners on any level can relate to. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Our next spooky story comes from Swiss Senator Lisa Rempf. Thanks so much for joining us here, Lisa. Thanks, Sandra, for inviting me. Lisa, 
Your spooky story starts with a mysterious summons to your human resources office. Tell us about that visit to HR, please, and where it led you. I recall that December afternoon quite vividly. My desk phone rang. It was my human resources director asking me to visit her office. My heart was racing as I walked down the hall. She closed the door upon my arrival, and I had feelings of butterflies in my stomach. I thought, what is going on? With limited introduction, she dove into her intended topic and asked if I would consider an exciting assignment for which she could tell me little about. Um, okay, I thought to myself. I would need to fly the next day and meet with a senior vice president to learn more. I said yes, despite the fact that I was supposed to be on vacation in the coming days for the Christmas holiday. Packing my suitcase, I certainly had more questions than answers. Once I arrived at the meeting, I learned of an upcoming and still confidential acquisition that was underway. They wanted me to take on the role of integration manager, and I needed to let them know my acceptance or not the following day. During my flight home, so many thoughts were going through my head. Ohio was the only home I'd ever known and where my immediate family lived. I also really enjoyed my current job, yet This seemed like a career growth opportunity that I could not pass up. So, I accepted the promotion on December 23rd of 2016, and 11 days later, took a one-way plane ticket to Wisconsin. Admittedly, it felt a bit scary and exciting at the same time. I eventually sold my house in Ohio and purchased a condo in Wisconsin with half of the living space, giving away huge portions of my belongings to family and friends in the process. I began to settle into my new location and even received a cheese head gift from my new colleagues. Not all that long later. Oh, wow. Yeah, not all that long later, another surprise was coming too when my employer was purchased in October of 2018. All in all, these changes have been rewarding professionally and allowed me to learn more about myself. That's uh, a lot, being called into a closed-door meeting, going on a mysterious airplane flight, accepting a new job away from your family for the first time. All of that, what would you say was the scariest part of your whole experience? Absolutely the unknown. I've always been very detail-oriented and with a plan. I like to envision the end point and the tasks or steps along the way. This experience stretched my comfort zone, and I had to practice my patience with managing ambiguity. Sometimes you have to go with the flow, which can be easier said than done. Well, for me at least. But it resulted in uh, really positive things happening. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So have you had any new spooky or mysterious experiences at work? Actually, earlier this month, I moved again, this time a bit further away and across the ocean to Germany 
for an extended expat assignment. I'm just getting started and certainly don't have everything figured out yet. However, I am embracing the adventure. Wow, what a whirlwind, Lisa. What would you say to others who are facing big unknowns or unexpected changes at work? A few thoughts. The first, I'll share advice that was given to me by a prior mentor. Know your boundary conditions ahead of time so that you can be prepared to quickly make decisions when presented to you. This helps significantly when accepting my expat assignment. Secondly, I think about complex situations like juggling. You can't let glass balls drop, similar to important issues, because they'll be broken and nearly impossible to put back together. The rubber ones, or less critical items, can bounce and be picked up again when manageable. It's being able to realize what is priority versus what perhaps can wait for the time being. Lastly, know what is grounding for you when things may get a bit overwhelming. For me, it was regular video chatting with my family and especially my niece and nephew. This provided me an escape and always put a smile on my face. Well, thank you, Lisa, for taking the time amid your relocation to Germany to relive your spooky stories and adventures. Best of luck to you in your new role and your new home. Thanks, Sandra. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and sharing my personal experiences. Our next guest, professional engineer Karen Chan, can relate to Lisa's stories of scary relocation assignments. She's also here to tell us about creepy coworker warnings. Thank you so much for joining us to share your spooky stories. Thank you for having me, Sandra. Karen, you and your husband, who's also an engineer, are natives of Canada, but you were asked to take an international assignment. Tell us about that, please. Sure. In 2007, my husband and I were both design engineers for an automotive manufacturer. This was my second assignment as a DE, and I realized that I didn't enjoy the sitting in the office and the heavily like computer aspect of the job. I missed my time in production. I missed actually seeing our cars being built and going out the door. So I was trying to find a way to get back to the plant, but leveraging all my new experience in design. There was an opportunity to be a launch engineer to join the launch team. Uh, however, the only catch was that it would require uh, physically relocating first to Michigan for six months and then to Mexico for about two years in order to support the launch of our vehicle programs uh, because our programs were going to be built in Mexico. Because my husband was also an engineer and a design engineer in the same area and working on the same programs, we decided to go to our management teams and say, we, we're happy to take this assignment, but we need to go together. We were lucky that our organization was supportive. Um, and I think they made it quite well because it was two assignments, one relocation cost. And in the summer of 2007, we moved down to Mexico with our two-year-old son. And what did you find to be the greatest challenges in living abroad? And I know especially uh, you had told me you, you did now have a two-year-old. Yes. So when we first moved down, it was like some things were very similar to home and some things were really different. 
And the things that were different seem like small things, but it was just a very different way of doing things. For example, the way you pay bills here at home, we could pay uh, online or we can mail in our payments. But when we were living there, we actually had to, so for some of the places we had to go physically to their offices and pay, we had to pay through our bank account. And for some bills, we could actually pay at the grocery store. So it was a bit weird trying to figure all that out. Uh, for our son, who was only two, he was not quite school age, not quite like pure babysitting nanny sort of thing. So trying to find the right school for him was a bit difficult and trying to navigate all the stuff that he needed. Um, here in Canada, uh, most two-year-olds in their daycare or their schools, they don't necessarily need uniforms. But in Mexico, every child had to have a uniform and they had like quite a huge list of school supplies. So my husband and I, we, with the help of our Spanish teachers, um, we had to figure out how to get our son registered for school and work with the teachers and all that, knowing that Spanish wasn't our first language. It's pretty daunting. And uh, before your move to Mexico, one of your roles, as you had mentioned, was as a supervisor of auto plant workers. And explain what happened when you were asked to cover for a night shift peer there, please. Yes. One of my developmental assignments required being a supervisor in the plant. And in that role, uh, there was shift work and we were on swing. So at one point it was on an evening shift. I was told that my counterpart in the other plant would not be in that night. So I had to cover both plants, which was not a big deal. I'd done that before. But on one particular evening, one of my fellow coworkers, as she was headed at the door, said, hey, be careful with that guy. Um, don't get caught alone with him at the end of the night because you're exactly his type. I remember being really taken aback by that. And how did you navigate that situation? And in hindsight, is there anything you would have done or handled differently? So in that moment, I was surprised. And I think it took me a couple of beats to, for that meeting to really set in. Um, I sort of brushed it off but not really because this was somebody that I had worked with for several months up to that point and nothing untoward had ever happened. Uh, however, I didn't want to be, um, I want to be smart about it. So I remember calling my husband and saying, Hey, it's evening shift. I was just told to be careful. One of the guys that I supervise was, I was told that he, um, I'm exactly his type and to be careful at the end of shift. So my husband actually came into the plant uh, near the end of shift I kept me company for the last you know, half hour or so and then walked me out. After that, I always made sure I had a buddy uh, when I was walking out of the plant at the end of the shift and made sure that I wasn't alone. What advice do you have for women who might feel threatened or unsafe in their workplace? My advice to women who feel threatened or unsafe would be one, get out. You deserve to be in a better workplace. If you can't, um, my other advice would be to be aware and to be safe and uh, not to be alone. I have to admit, I really hate giving this advice because I think everyone deserves to be in a safe workplace. They shouldn't have to worry about their physical safety or um, untoward things happening to them. Uh, the reality is that we're not always so lucky, um, but I think the only thing you can do as an individual is to be safe and to be aware of what's around you. Great. Thank you for that, Karen. Hopefully, it is advice that our listeners won't need, but you just never know. We appreciate you taking time to share your spooky stories. Thank you. 
our last guest, Stella Uzuchuku Dennis, is an electrical engineer and a SWE global ambassador who is speaking to us from Nigeria. Thank you so much for joining us, Stella. Thank you, Sandra. It's my pleasure to be on this um, program. Thank you so much. And tell us, please, a bit about your career after you graduated from the university. Just your role, your job description. Okay, my role in the office, I got a job with a telecom firm, and now I am the switch engineer. And my major role is to make sure there are no outages so people can speak. It's a CDMA technology organization. So our major role was to make sure that people can speak to each other. And since it was the first um, telecom company that was coming in, apart from the government-owned um, telecom company, we had a huge customers. And then we ensured that the the lines were up at every point in time. So basically that was what I was doing, everyday job, going to check the BTSs, making sure that um, everything is up. And so basically that's what I was doing in my office. Okay. So in telling our spooky stories, you mentioned to me that after you got married and had a baby girl, um, that something happened at work that was very unexpected, but uh, you were actually able to Make that work. So uh, please let, tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah. Um, in my office, I actually got married after um, two years in the office. And um, so when I got married, I was in another state. My husband was in another state. So I had to stay for an additional one year before I could join my husband after the application. And so got pregnant and then gave back to my baby girl. And um but before then, when I got pregnant, um, the office, the guys in the office were like, oh, um, Stella, we won't want to um, listen to any um, complaints or any reasons for you not to run the shift because we run a shift of morning, afternoon and night because there should be someone at the office 24 hours, you know. So um, that didn't take me aback. I told them it's not a problem that I will be able to run the shift with them. And I was running the shift until I gave birth. And so when I gave birth, I was on maternity leave for three months. And after the maternity leave, when you resume, you usually have one hour. Either you take one hour before, um, you take one hour late before resumption or after the close of work, you're supposed to leave one hour before. So um, that day I had everything planned up to come in early and then leave one hour before. But unfortunately, um, the system went down. So um, calls could not go through and customers were calling and all that. The head of operation was announced and make it, to make sure that we rectify the problem. And so um, when it was getting late, I expected that I should be given permission to go home and take care of my baby, knowing that that was my first day at work after resumption from the maternity leave. My baby was still about close to three months, you know. So, but um, I had so many side talks from the guys saying, well, we all have to be here. This is the um, instruction. Everybody has to be here. Even those who were not on duty had to be called, you know. So everybody was like, oh, no one should leave for no reason at all. And I was like, oh, okay, it's fine. 
I stayed back and um, I had expressed milk for my baby. But um, when it was about 12 midnight, my husband called to say that um, the baby was crying and then what should we do? You know, I didn't have an option. I told him <laughs> I was not going to be able to leave this place. So um, they had the option to bring the child. And the drive from my house to my office is about um, 35 minutes. So they brought my baby about 12, 12, 30 midnight. And then I breastfed her. And after breastfeeding her, they had to wait for a while. Then thinking the system would soon come up, but it didn't. So um, they went back about after one and then about 3 30 again my husband called that the baby was screaming out you know so they had to come again so they brought the baby and then i breastfed her but at that time i had a clue of how soon we would be rounding up because um systems were already coming up the uh, cats were already um um coming up and so we were like uh, we're close to success you know so when they came about 3 45 or thereabout so I breastfed the baby, so my husband and the baby had to stay in the car until we finished. And we got the system up about 4.30, they're about to 5. And then <laughs> that was, um, it was at that time I had to go home. And then it was so funny that the guys were just, they, they didn't feel anything was wrong with it. They felt, uh, well, it's, it's the job you asked for, so you should do it. So that's, that's, the, that's the expression I got on their face. But it was okay, so <laughs> that's it. That's what I would call perseverance. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So now please tell us uh, what your life is like and how your tenacity has influenced your now 12-year-old daughter. <laughs> yeah, it's 12 years down the lane. But I have a story. Before my daughter turned 12. When she was one year plus, I got admission to go to India to do my master's. And so when I got to India, I noticed there was kind of education they were doing called STEM education. That was the first time I was hearing about it. So um, I got interested. I got to know about what they were doing. And then when I came back to Nigeria, since I was working with a telecom company, I had um, internet. Then internet was a big thing in Nigeria. So we had free internet. I started studying and then looking at how STEM education can be implemented in Nigeria. And that got me to, I, I had to drop that job. And then I had the passion to ensure that more girls and kids in Nigeria became STEM career um, girls. So, and that also <laughs> showed up on my daughter. So um, along the way, I joined the Society of Women Engineers when I got to know about this, that they also do a program called Invent It, Build It. I became the program director. And um, I noticed that every month we get a mail telling us to have a challenge for the young girls that are in my team. And so luckily for me, I enrolled Angel for one of the competitions every month because she's my um, she's my experimental lamb. Anytime I have um, something to do on STEM, I usually ask her to do it for so that month um we saw this um competition on how to make a, a plane and a paper plane and then if your plane flies the longest you get an award to come to, to the u.s to have a look at what is happening and then be be involved in this three um conference so we embarked on that journey and then we started working on those um 
on the competition. And then luckily for her, she came the best. And then she was um, featured on the Costas and Nano. And we got um, an overwhelming welcome when we came to the U.S. They took us to Selima. We saw a lot of movies and all that. So it was, um, I, I would say, down the line, it's been worth the while. Absolutely. Congratulations to her and you. Thank you. So, Stella, thank you again for joining us and for inspiring future generations of engineers. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. We hope you felt as energized and encouraged as we do in hearing these stories of amazing courage. Perhaps you'll even recall your favorite empowering story every time you see Halloween decorations in the coming weeks. Be sure to read the SWE members' stories in the latest SWE magazine and to follow SWE and SWE Talk on social media. I'm Sandra Guy. For all of us at SWE, thanks for listening. <music>